Welcome to the Ogilvy Podcast, where we feature expert conversations and analysis on the complexities of culture, technology, business, and marketing. I'm Steve Mudd, your host, marketing strategist, here today at our offices in Chi-Town, Chicago, Illinois. Go Cubs. My guest today is David Hernandez, Executive Creative Director with Ogilvy here at our Chicago office. Hi, David. How are you? Real good, thanks. Happy to be here with you today. So now that we've done the uh, overly formal introductions... um, Content, right? Everybody cares about content. Brands are struggling. Brands are are, are clamoring to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Um, what's the biggest challenge they face these days? God, I think the biggest challenge is not for the client so much as it is for us to try to keep up with the pace, um, the demands. I and mean, we used to live in the world of, you know, what was it? Um, good, fast, and cheap, pick any two. And now I think, you know, like it or not, um, more often we see folks that are looking for good, fast, and cheap, pick all three. So I think it's a matter of us, you know, changing the way that we operate to try to keep pace with the client's demands. And so what does that mean? So in the old days, we might sit back and, um, you know, have a couple scotches and figure out this is the right creative approach to delivering content. Can we do that anymore? Is there room for drinking? Yeah, you know, there's definitely room for drinking. I think that'll never go away, but I think what's going to change, I mean, Ogilvy at its best is an amazing brand store, and we're great at long lead time, big budget productions, and that's amazing. We have to continue to be amazing at long lead time, big budget productions, but at the same time, I think we're seeing more and more and more of what I would think of as like the daily rhythm of digital and social, and they need more stuff, and they need it faster, and they need it cheaper, they need it more often, and uh, sometimes they don't even know what they need. You know, so it's it's kind of a never-ending um, parade of just making stuff. So I think about um, two different things, like brand assets, you know, kind of the thing that we're traditionally known for, versus um, something that's emerged relatively recently, which I would think of as transactional assets. So you've got big budgets on the one hand, you've got long lead times on the one hand. On the other hand, we're making stuff now, whether it's um, e-commerce, product detail page, product descriptions, SEO bullet points copy, stuff that I would think of, we, you know, we call it tier two assets, not because we we don't value it as much, but because there's just not as much investment in it. So we can't take the same people, the same processes, the same technology that we're using when we're sitting around drinking the scotch, trying to come up with the Super Bowl commercial. We can't apply that same methodology to transactional assets. And I think that's kind of a big um, fundamental shift that we're seeing right now is how do we as Ogilvy um, continue to be a brand store for our clients, um, doing it with things like Super Bowl commercials and brand relaunches, but then also um, being a brand store when it comes down to things like SEO bullet point copy on an Amazon.com product detail page. So we've got to find the right, like I said before, the right people, the right processes, and the right technology to enable that to happen. It feels like the shelf life has just changed on everything. Like I, I, I cut my teeth writing white papers, you know, back in the day when I first entered the industry, right for for IBM, and you might write a white paper, and that's going to be some sort of intellectual content that's going to sit there for months and years, or at least that was the thought. And I mean, what do you think the shelf life is on transactional content? Well, it's interesting. So um, it's funny that you say that too, because I have some 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 fond, not so fond memories, I should say. I remember being on the subway once, coming into work in the morning, and I, you know, I'd spent the last you know six months or whatever cranking out this print ad, you know, laborious, every detail, the craftsmanship, the photography, the copy, worrying about every little nuanced detail of it. And I'm lucky enough to be in, standing in the subway, you know, during rush hour, 
and I look down and there's a young woman reading the latest issue of Rolling Stone that has my ad in it and I see her flipping through the pages and I'm watching anxiously to see what her reaction is going to be when she sees this ad that I had just been laboring over for the last several months and she just flipped right past it you know so <laughs> that was my introduction to the 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 kind of the disposable nature of a lot of the things that we do you know so uh, and again like that 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 particular issue is off the shelf in a couple of weeks or a month, and the next one's out, and it's in in the rubbish um, bin of history. But um, you know, if that was bad enough, now I think about some of the things that we're making for, like the daily rhythm of social. If we're doing a social post, a Facebook post, an Instagram post, that's kind of in and out of someone's feed in the blink of an eye, and maybe never seen again. Um, on the other hand, the transactional assets, a lot of that stuff, I think, starts to become part of the always-on layer. So if you think about, you know, the assets that are needed to fuel search, the assets that are needed. To to always meet the needs of consumers with questions. That's the stuff that doesn't necessarily go away. That's always on. You know, again, not that it's as gratifying, not that there's as much craftsmanship that goes into it, but actually that stuff, the transactional assets tend to have a longer shelf life than the average Facebook post and the, the average um, print ad for that matter. I wonder how much of my legacy is actually going to be PowerPoint slides that I've created uh, you know, across the universe of the different clients. Every once in a while, I'll see one of my old slides like pop up, and I think, wow, I'm, I'm among the immortals now. Yeah, exactly. You'll find it's, that's those things. The, you might be speaking at a random conference, and then you don't realize that the PowerPoint presentation that you just gave is showing up on SlideShare, and it's going to now remain in eternity <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the cloud on SlideShare. So people generations from now will go back and look at some content marketing PowerPoint that you gave at South by Southwest in 2015, or not. Yeah. And, and, and the brands, of course, eventually forget their passwords to the slideshare. Yeah, so it really is there forever. There's exactly. no, way, no way to delete that. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, uh, so you, you've started a new practice here, or a new, a new office uh, as part of Ogilvy to deal with this change in content. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, as I mentioned a little bit before, you know, we're seeing that um, there is a legacy kind of client agency way of working, and that was geared towards long lead time, big budget productions. And if you think about the relationship that we have with long-term clients, clients that we've been working with for years, if not decades, it's a relationship that was built in, you know, the so-called good old days when it was TV, print, radio, and outdoor in that order. Um, so the people, the processes, the technology that were in place were geared towards those sorts of channels, those sorts of assets. So we we realized that we had to make kind of a sea change. We had to make a disruptive change in order to be able to recalibrate ourselves to um, to get to to achieve a content velocity that kind of lives up to the the demands of our clients. So uh, again, we talk about um, the people, we talk about the processes, and we talk about the technology. I think, you know, from a, a people standpoint, the creation of lower investment assets really requires lower cost human resources, whether that's locally or offshore. And again, that's just a fact. I mean, I think about the average person who walks in the door at Ogilvy who's going to be called an art director or a copywriter. Just the nature of our business, the nature of the creative esteem of Ogilvy, the nature of, you know, kind of, you know, the salary rates for those types of roles. If we have those people cranking out project descriptions or, you know, mobile-ready hero images, you know, of a you know, a, a home cleaning product or something like that. It's just not fundamentally the best use of their time. So again, we have to look at the people that we're, we're you know, putting against those problems. From a process standpoint, this, you know, what we call tier two content, it really can't be burdened by legacy client agency processes. 
um, the demands for more content more efficiently means we have to fundamentally change how these work streams move through the system. And then I think finally, and this is obvious, but from a technology standpoint, the degree of velocity and efficiency we need, that can only be realized through the right tools. So without getting into too much detail, we're, we're um, leaning on the WPP Adobe Alliance to help us kind of configure the right solution to meet un our unique needs for um, e-commerce PDP asset production. And then ultimately, um, we envision extending this new model into other forms of low investment assets like Dynamic OLA, for example. So, I mean, David Ogilvy is, you know, famously a copywriter by, by trade, at least at some level. Would David Ogilvy fit in that world? Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, the culture of like constantly testing and learning and optimizing was something that he was very fond of. I mean, he was a direct marketer at heart. And I think a lot of the things that we're talking about now, it's kind of like getting work into the marketplace, let people vote with their clicks, let people vote with their engagement levels, and then let us as an agency culture constantly learn from that and kind of optimize moving forward. I think it's something that he would really relish is the kind of immediate feedback you can get from instantly releasing work into the marketplace and getting getting this um, kind of automatic feedback loop through likes, through loves, through shares, through engagement, and ultimately um, through retail offtake. I mean, so I, I work a lot on the B2B side. You know, we certainly have a lot of B2B um, uh, business and content you know, coming out of our shops. How does that change in the B2B world? Is there a difference between what, what content velocity looks like there and content velocity in the consumer world? Well, it's interesting. I think in a lot of the B2B work that I'm familiar with um, tends to be very vertical-oriented. Um, You've got so many special specialties or specialisms from government audiences, education audiences, healthcare audiences, et cetera. So I think what we're seeing is the demand for very specialized content. It's like, of course, you might have a national um, layer of uh, a brand campaign for a big client like CDW or Cisco or something like that. On the other hand, we've got to deal with really hyper-specialized um, searches that are out there that are, you know, real people with real technology needs um, looking for solutions. And if our technology clients, our B2B clients, don't have content out there to fuel that demand, they're not going to be able to play. So I think it is interesting. We are seeing ourselves having to do, you know, again, for those sorts of clients, yes, we're still doing, you know, massive campaigns that are going to run um, on national television during the PGA or during NCAA basketball. At the same time, we've got to create... Um, lower investment content that's going to be very um, specialty oriented, you know, whether it's around network security, whether it's around the cloud, et cetera, we'll sometimes see ourselves creating assets. We'll go back in and look a year later and maybe see that it only has 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000 views. Um, you know, from a big brand perspective, you would look at that and say that's an epic fail. But if you're thinking about, you know, a hardcore, big budget um, IT decision maker, if among those 1,000 views, we were able to convert five people, I mean, that's, that's, you know, meets the business goals of those clients for the course of the year. So I think, you know, we've got to be primed not just to making content that's geared toward mass audiences during the Super Bowl, but specialty audiences during, you know, they're up at night because they can't sleep because there's something that's bothering them about their network security and they do a search. And, you know, if, if we're lucky enough, they're finding the content that we're creating on behalf of our clients. So is there... Um 
I mean, there's a lot of expertise, of course, tucked within our clients, and then there's a lot of expertise you have to express in that content. How do you ease the friction between getting the, the stuff out of the brains of our clients into that content? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do see, you know, again, speaking about the role of technology, I think um, dams are really going to come into play more and more in the future, like having a single source of truth for all of the product information, all of the product description, all of the reasons to believe, all of the claims, et cetera. One of the things that we're finding right now when we're creating kind of transactional um, assets, transactional content, we spend probably half of our time not making stuff, but trying to source the expert content that we need from the clients. And sometimes that information is spread um, all over the world, and it's not even in um, asset management systems. It's just in someone's inbox somewhere in someone's file cabinet. So, you know, we definitely need to get to the point where between agencies and clients, we all have access to, you know, single dashboards that give us a single source of truth, a single view into everything and anything we need to know about their business. And we're just not there yet. I mean, the technology exists, but the the systemic kind of enterprise-wide changes haven't been affected yet to make that a reality. Yeah, I think people definitely spend a lot of time holding on to that intellectual property and that, you know, they don't, they're, they're not always... Um... They don't always understand the value of, of sharing it. They don't necessarily see the gold nuggets that are hiding in their um, piles of coal. That's probably the bad, a bad analogy there. <laughs> no, but the, the diamonds hidden in the coal. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a matter of us, kind of our studios, our kind of content factory models, being able to tap into all those assets. Um, so we're spending less time, you know, hunting for the resources and more time assembling and distributing the resources. So how do we balance then the challenge of of HR, right? This this new person who this new content creator who has to be an expert or who has to at least be able to articulate at a level of, of short expertise about these topics, um, but who maybe isn't you know hasn't been around for a hundred years in the field and knows everything about cloud security. How do you bridge that gap? I mean, one of the things that we're doing is is hiring people who are very kind of bespoke to the task at hand, you know, new roles, new titles. You know, it wasn't that long ago when it would have been unheard of for us to have, you know, editors and librarians and asset managers sitting among, you know, creative directors and copywriters and and art directors, but now that's becoming more and more the norm. And I think finding that right division of labor where you bring in people who have those kind of specialty capabilities, you know, we're seeing more and more people coming in from uh, more of a journalism or editorial background where maybe they've been writing um, about, for example, a B2B specialty, writing about technology, for example, and being able to bring those people into the fold um, in the agency model, but then having them sit shoulder to shoulder with more kind of what I would think of as, you know, traditional, you know, advertising brand trained creatives where um, they can operate kind of as a yin and a yang. You know, they do different things. We're, you know, we're always looking for Swiss Army knives. We're always looking for people who can do more things, but we also have to appreciate the need once in a while for specialization. And I think that comes into play, especially in the realms of B2B, where we definitely need people who have um, vertical expertise. So you know, obviously we're, we we talk a lot about the big brands. You know, there, there's all the the, the historic sort of um, iconic brands that Ogilvy has worked with over the years and continues to work with. Um, there's a lot of startups out there in the world. There's a lot of a lot of companies that are coming from ground zero. 
you have some experience with a ground zero type company who's had to create its story from scratch. Can you can you talk about that story? Yeah, and uh, you know I think you know for me, um, I had always kind of bounced around between big agencies and startups, you know, digital startups, creative boutiques, and I think um, I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, uh, helping to start companies like the Lee Partnership and the Royal Order, for example. Yeah, now that I'm back at um, Ogilvy and I've been back for a long time, I'm still looking for kind of outside outlets for creativity and for that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think most recently, I've been finding that through my kind of side passion project, which is um, Camp Wanda up in Wisconsin. And this was, you know, a totally weird, random story. But um, it's my childhood church camp. It's um, now listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And my wife and I bought it around 2004. And we had no vision, no mission, no business plan, no nothing. We just wanted to save it from the wrecking ball. But in the process of doing that, um, Camp Wanduiga has kind of become a thing. It's become a venue. It's become a destination. It's been... It's been listed uh, in. It's been featured in places like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Um, Condé Nast Traveler named it one of the 100 top hotels in America, which we found kind of laughable. <laughs> we talk about ourselves as being uh, one eighth of a star on a four star scale. But I think so. The beauty of it isn't the fact that um, we've had success with it. It's been that it's been a little bit of a kind of a content laboratory for me and my wife um, Teresa Surratt, who's a creative director at Ogilvy. Um, we're in a position where it is truly a mom and pop business. And um, we don't, we we don't, we're definitely not going to do any paid advertising. I hate to say that, you know, as <laughs> as an ad man who you know tries to convince a lot of my clients to spend more on paid advertising. Um, that's not. Um, something where we're at that point in our life cycle to be able to do that. So we've really relied on a lot of content marketing and a lot of influencer marketing, working um, with um, people that we know from the industry, whether they're Instagram stars, photographers, filmmakers, doing a lot of trading, doing a lot of bartering, doing whatever we need to do to be able to get our message out there, to tell our story, and to distribute our story. And it's it's been an amazing laboratory for us. We have learned... Um, you know, what it takes to be able to get stuff done quickly and cheaply. And not that quick and cheap are the only measures of this, but for us, I think bringing some of that entrepreneurial spirit back into Ogilvy, and if we ever run into naysayers on the client side or even at the, even at the agency side who says, we can't do that, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough money, um, we can push back. <laughs> we can say, you know what, I think we do have enough time, I think we do have enough money, and here's how I would suggest getting it done. So I think we're able to kind of have a little bit of a healthy push-pull with people who might be um, a little bit more traditionally minded, a little bit more grounded in long lead times and big budget productions that we can help them, um, we can help show them the way to getting things done fast and cheap. And, you know, like I said before, fast, cheap, and good. <laughs> I know there's there's a certain amount of um, mystery amongst people outside the uh, agency world. You know, how does this whole influencer thing work? People don't necessarily even realize they're being influenced from time to time. Do you just invite influencers up to to hang out and take pictures? You know, it's interesting. I think because we are in this industry, um, you know, a lot of our friends happen. You know, we, we bought the property in 2004, which is the same year that um, Facebook was born. Basically, oh, wow. they've had a lot more success than we have, <laughs> but we've been able to kind of go along that ride of social media. Um, you know, with the birth of Instagram, for example, I think that was two th around 2010. Um, just organically, some of the people that would come up who were friends of ours from the industry happened to be early adopters of Facebook, early adopters of Instagram. Some of them were kind of, you know, had gone on to become Instagram celebrities, whether it's Paul Octavius, Mo Neal, people like that. When they come up, 
you know, they're just shooting organically. You know, anywhere they go, they're constantly shooting. We'd be hanging out by the campfire with them, drinking whiskey, telling ghost stories, just having a good time. And they would post some of the pictures on their feeds, and all of a sudden we would see our following jump up every time that <laughs> happened. So, I mean, for us, it was a very tangible way to see the benefit of engaging influencers. So, you know, now we still do that relatively organically. We still have a lot of, a lot of friends who are constantly creating content for a living, and whenever they come up to camp, they continue to do that. Um, and a lot of times we'll do barters nowadays too. If people want to come up and, you know, they don't want to pay kind of the rack rate to stay there, we'll get, we'll cut them a deal. And, um, as part of that deal, they'll understand, you know, whether it's, you know, a formal deal or whether it's with a wink and a nod that as part of it, they're going to help tell our story for us. We'll be happy to promote the camp on this podcast. <laughs> well, thank if you, you. Yeah, we'll come up and... <laughs> yeah. Where should people go? What's the website? Uh, Wandawiga.com. Wandawiga.com. Yeah. Excellent. We'll put that on every podcast, yeah. and, then, and then me and my family will come up <laughs> yeah, uh, great. next summer. We'll see you soon. That'll be good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting there because you're obviously you're marketing a place, mm-hmm. and it has a very distinct feel, and it has a wonderful history to it. Um, and, and a lot of... A lot of brands have iconic histories like that, but a lot of their content may be divorced from that history or, you know, we're, we're creating it in, in a lab or, you know, somebody in, in a room. They're not necessarily leveraging their physical presence, I think. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that we learned from Camp Wandawiga was how can we kind of rummage through the brand attic? How can we find old stories, old artifacts, and bring them to life in a way that feels thoroughly modern? And I think that's something that a lot of our brands care about. You know, we work on a lot of brands that are, you know, multi-generational, family-owned. They've been around for 100 years or longer. A lot of them are really afraid to, to leverage their history, leverage their backstory, leverage their founding story because they feel like it's, it's looking backwards. And I think um, we can help them do that in a way where they can understand understand that their history is a foundation to build on or it's a springboard into the future. So, um, you know, you can tell those stories in a way that creates a level of authenticity, a level of genuineness, and gives those brands a level of credibility that, um, quite frankly, some of their more Johnny-come-lately, you know, disruptive newcomer competition just doesn't have that same story value. And that's perhaps the other side of training this next generation of creatives to not just have the expertise and the, and the skills to create, but also have an appreciation, I think, of that authenticity. Yeah, definitely. I think we're living in an era right now where you've got kind of a new generation of of ad people, you know, the the iPhone generation who can create constant content instantly. You know, we used to talk about being fast meant creating content this morning to distribute tonight. Now we're talking about creating content like right now during this podcast to post during this podcast, you know, so and that's great. So but agility only goes so far. And I think um, um, we try to foster an environment at Ogilvy where the generation of craftsmen and craftswomen, you know, the people who've been around a little bit longer, the people who truly under understand the art and the craft of narrative storytelling and long form writing and, you know, the art and the craft and the beauty of filmmaking. Like there's a power to that that will never go away. And if we can help kind of bridge that wisdom um, with the new generation, you know, the, the, the kids whose only phone will ever be an iPhone, um, I think if we can bring those two things together in a way that um, other folks are struggling to, we at Ogilvy can provide kind of the best of both worlds. 
So what does the future look like for, for Wanda Wiga and for content, for Ogilvy? What do you what do you see out there? It's interesting. So uh, one of the things that I'm kind of geeked about right now, and this is something that we're exploring for Ogilvy, we're trying to stand up a pilot, is um, leveraging technology, things like um, artificial intelligence and um, NLG or natural language generation um, to basically be able to take kind of some of the menial tasks, some of the really low-level tasks like product descriptions and SEO bullet point copy to get that stuff out of the hands of the copywriters. And again, the point of that isn't to eliminate the roles of the copywriters to replace them with robots. It's to be able to free them up to spend more of their time focusing on the bigger picture problem solving so that, you know, under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night, we're filling out CSVs and we're filling out spreadsheets and we're entering keywords and we're entering product RTBs into a spreadsheet and we're hitting, you know, the go button. And when we come back in the morning, we've got thousands of lines of product descriptions that have been written that can now be reviewed by by editors and proofreaders and then ultimately you know scanned at some point by you know the brand copywriters just to make sure it feels like it's in the brand voice and kind of training the machines to be able to get better and better to the nuances of each of our brands so I'm fascinated about like a future where we are truly trying to leverage technology to take the parts of our job that we just don't need um, human intervention to do you know if you think about a lot of the menial tasks from production design you know finding the right image um, sizing that image cropping the image, dealing with um, the rights and the usage of that image, all of that stuff is going to be automated in the future. And again, it's not about replacing jobs. It's about allowing um, you know, the talented people, the more highly paid people of Ogilvy to be able to truly help solve um, bigger picture client problems more of the time rather than being distracted by some of the tactical things that we currently have to do. So it's an interesting balance. You know, how much time do you, you spend doing those those tasks versus actually creating actually using using the brain power versus actually sitting in uh, pointless meetings <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, now we can, we'll can we have more time to sit in pointless meetings because we'll know that while we're doing that, the robots will be writing our copy for us. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. I look yeah. forward to the future. Yep. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate you being on the Ogilvy Podcast today. My pleasure. Great to join you today. Wandawiga.com. <laughs> That's right. Check it out. Yeah. Ogilvy.com first and foremost. Ogilvy.com, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. You'll yeah. find the link hidden. Uh, maybe not. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if it's actually on. Exactly. exactly. Let's see who listens. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Ogilvy Podcast. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. I'm Steve Mudd, marketing strategist. Join us next time when we speak with Sharita Lucas, the director of digital content delivery for Ogilvy, about how agility and diversity are helping deliver content at the speed of digital.